Hi, everyone. Welcome to Podbytes. I'm Valentina Kaladina, and I'm here with my co-host, Ariel Nissenblatt. Hi, Ariel. Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. We've got a really great show for you today. Thanks for having me on. We're live on CastBox every Wednesday, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Podbytes is a live interactive show where we talk about the podcast industry. This is episode number 13. This is live cast, so feel free to participate. For questions and comments, please call or text. It would be really great to hear from you throughout the program. In Podbytes, we invite investors, podcasters, and other key opinion leaders to share their insights into the podcast industry. The show is recorded live and uploaded as a podcast episode afterwards. You can engage with other listeners and guests by dialing in or writing comments in real time. You can also send virtual gifts to the host to support the show. You can find previous episodes of the show in replace. Just go to CastBox and search for Podbytes. Livecast is a feature within the CastBox app. It enables anyone to open a chat room and host a show. Listeners can tune in to listen. They can also interact with hosts, texting, and even calling in. The purpose of Livecast is to make podcasting into more of an active medium. Hosts can now engage with their audiences in real time, and audiences can chat directly with their favorite hosts. A week ago, we were joined by Alison Marino, who is the founder of the podcast network Lipstick and Vinyl. We were talking about how to launch a podcast network and how to grow it as a business. Lipstick and Vinyl is focused on supporting underrepresented voices in media. The firm currently has got 14 podcasts in the network, and uh, they help them with production and studio space, as well as with marketing, sales, and pairing brands for sponsorship. Check it out. Who knows, maybe your podcast will be the next one that Lipstick and Vinyl will add to their network. Lipstick and Vinyl will be at the Podcast Movement event in Orlando. They will support society, culture, and advocacy track. CastBox will also be there at Podcast Movement event. So if you haven't booked your tickets yet, hurry up. Podcast Movement is a great way to meet all the important people in podcasting. It's a pretty big event. It has lots of workshops, panel discussions, parties, and so much more. The CastBox team is going to be there, and we'd love for you to come say hey. We're running a contest during Podcast Movement, and we encourage you to become live casters. Come by and learn about it and then win some amazing prizes. You will not want to miss it. In a few minutes, we will talk to Zander Sherman. This is Podbyte's talk show. I'm Valentina Kaladina, and together with me is Ariel Nissenblatt. Today, we're joined by Zander Sherman. Zander Sherman is a best-selling author and award-winning journalist. His feature writing has appeared in Vanity Fair and Esquire, among many others, and been noted by the New York Times. In 2019, he won a Canadian Screen Award for his work on a CBC documentary, Murder in Cottage Country. He's the season four host of Uncover, a CBC podcast. Previously, Sherman authored The Curiosity of School, a best-selling history of education published by Penguin Canada. Sherman lives north of Toronto and co-writes music under the name Large. Hi, Xander. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Here on Podbytes, we discuss podcasting from different angles. In today's show, we are going to talk about one of the most successful true crime podcasts and also about how the soundtracks for podcasts are created. 
So I'm going to get us started today with an interview, Xander. Very excited to have you. Um, we want to remind listeners before we get started that we are live on CastBox's live cast right now, and we're looking forward to receiving your questions and comments. So feel free to call in or text in, or you can also save your questions to the end, and we are going to have a few minutes at the end to answer those questions. So Xander, um, I'd love to start with your experience in podcast reporting. Before that, we should mention that we got word that the Ontario Provincial Police will be hosting a much-anticipated press conference about the Muskoka murders tomorrow at 11 a.m., which is something that you've been angling for, it seems, through the reporting in your podcast. What are your thoughts on this, and can you give a little background on that? Sure. For anyone who's listened to the podcast, you'll know exactly what is happening. For those of you who haven't, this is um, the Ontario Provincial Police commenting for the first time on a historic missing persons case from Muskoka, Ontario, the case that I've been investigating for several years now. And this press conference came about because I was uh, seeking to interview Detective Rob Matthews, who is the current case manager of the investigation. And Rob had initially agreed to a sit-down interview with me, and then he backed out of that interview and decided to have a press conference instead. So that is what is happening tomorrow. He says wow. that tomorrow they will disclose potential ways that this case can be solved. So it's a tantalizing announcement, and I'm very excited to see what happens tomorrow. Yeah, that's really, really exciting. I actually, I just finished the series last night. And the last thing I remember that stuck in my mind was that you were trying to get Rob on in, in an interview with you and he was refusing to do so. And so this next this next thing is just very exciting. I want to talk a little bit about your introduction into journalism. Sorry to interrupt you. Maybe we can start from listening a little bit to the Uncovered podcast. I've got a small oh, piece. That'd be of great. That. Let's do it to introduce to our listeners and encourage you guys to listen to it if you haven't listened to it yet. This is a CBC podcast. I'm standing in a small 8 by 10 shed, just like the one you might have in your backyard. It's full of gardening tools, tarp, bits of lumber, and an old lawnmower battery. The shed sits on a property in Muskoka, Ontario, Canada's cottage country. And while the lake is right there, the shed is far from glamorous. As I'm standing here, an orange cat wanders over. It takes a step inside the shed, but keeps one paw raised in the air, as if trying to make up its mind. Should I keep going or turn around? Psst, I say. Scat. The cat steps back and, a minute later, vanishes into the woods. Good, I think. Run. Thanks for listening, and uh, it was a small piece from the Uncovered podcast, and now let's come back to what you were saying before, Ariel. So, yeah, sure. Here I am. I'm back. Um, what what stands out to me the most about that um, that little clip, aside from the fact that your voice, Xander, is very chilling, um, is that I usually listen to podcasts on two on two times speed, so it was very slow to me, <laughs> which somehow makes it even more compelling. So I'm gonna consider going back to that. 
So I wanted to dive into your introduction to journalism and to reporting. If you could tell us a little bit about your background and what got you into reporting and uncovering stories, that would be great. Sure. I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I think I was voted most likely to write a book in high school. And uh, shortly thereafter, I went to my local magazine in Muskoka and just introduced myself and said, will you hire me to do some copy editing? And that led to feature writing. And then eventually I decided that I wanted to write a book on education because I had been homeschooled and uh, I had also attended public school. So I was kind of always curious about how the history of school came to be. And so I wrote that book in 2012 and then it did well enough for me to continue. Uh, it was a, a national bestseller in Canada, and it led to wow. me write, writing for um, for various magazines, which I've been doing uh, ever since. So I'm now uh, working as a freelance journalist. I've done uh, work for Vanity Fair and Esquire, as you said in the introduction, and uh, my latest venture is into podcasting. Wow. I love to hear people's journalism stories because nowadays it can be so... It, you can become a journalist in so many different ways. I know a lot of people going to school for journalism. Some people completely do it on their own. It sounds like you showed up in an office when you were in high school and did your own thing. So that's really impressive. You have done a lot of print journalism. You've done a lot of book writing, things like that. And only recently you stepped into the audio space, right? Yeah. Yeah. This podcast is my first foray. Nice. Um, what was the transition like into the audio space for you? Easy, hard? Well, it's funny that you ask because I think I write by ear. I was fortunate enough to, to grow up in a musical household and music has been just as important, if not more important to me than literature. So in, in a way, starting a podcast was um, very natural to me in that I had always been thinking about the way that words sound and the way that, you know, I would narrate a story if I wanted to. And, um, you know, I play music as well. And I had always wanted to uh, do a soundtrack and you, you might be asking me about this later but I was I was lucky enough to get the opportunity to compose the music for this podcast which I did with a friend of mine and that was very yeah, we'll, uh, very nice we'll talk about that later in details sure about the music yeah I listened to your interview with um, Joe Jordan I think is her name on um, one of one of the interviews you did maybe a, a in November or so in before you went into production for um, Uncover Season 4. And I think you mentioned she asked you a question about how audio is different from making a documentary because you had also collaborated on a documentary about these murders. And um, you said something about how a podcast like this that's so high in quality, and the CBC, of course, is a very high-quality production engine, works to make it a documentary, basically, but without a visual component. So it's essentially what you would see on TV, except just in your ears. Do you find that to be accurate still? Yeah. Yeah. I remember saying that it's, uh, you know, the, the, the example that we in podcasting all follow is serial, um, yeah. which is, uh, you know, a perfect example of that, you know, that, that podcast could have easily been a documentary, but the choice was made to, for it to be a podcast. And when you listen to it, you know, you, you see it and you see the story unfold and uh, that's something that, you know, I certainly aspired to when I was working on this podcast is to make it very visual so that listeners would stay focused on the story and on the events that happened and be able to, to picture everything. Yeah, I think you definitely did a great job doing that. So nowadays in the podcast industry, 
I don't know if you've started to follow along um, what's going on, following the newsletters of daily podcast-related news. There's a lot going on. There's been some acquisitions of um, companies. Spotify bought up a few of the smaller indie production podcast houses and um, also some apps that are big in the podcast world. And that's made a lot of podcast industry people guess about what's going on and what will happen with podcasting in the next few years. And I think a lot of people see podcasting as something very unique, something that will definitely take off. So I'm wondering, have you found that podcast journalism is unique and is different and is special, not not necessarily compared to print journalism, but do you find that there's something unique within um, podcast journalism? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think one of the the best things about a podcast that that everyone likes is that you can you can listen to it while you're doing other things and that's not something that you can do when you're reading a story or watching a movie and uh just given people's busy lives and running around and trying to multitask i, I think pod- podcast is a very conducive uh, storytelling format to to the 21st century and um you know that's not a that's not a criticism of it as well. It's it's something that you know you you want to pay attention to because it's it can be so captivating, and in a way, at least for me, I know that I, I almost listen to a, a podcast more closely if I'm able to to be doing something with my hands, working outside or or driving. It, it's almost a way of uh, of being able to to pay closer attention to the details of the story. I think that's true. I think a lot of people nowadays are they're excited by the medium because yeah, you can jog while you're doing it. You can clean. I've actually learned to clean more now that I listen to podcasts. I enjoy washing the dishes and I think um, true crime podcasts like this feel especially captivating when you're listening while going about your everyday life. So I wanted to jump into your, the fact that you've reported on this story um, for so many years, first of all, it's been, when did the when did Joan go reported missing in 1998? Is that right? In November of 1998. Long time ago. Um, I'm wondering quickly for people who have not listened yet, if you could give just a, a minute or two synopsis of um, of what the case is about. These are people's real lives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in 1998, there was an elderly woman who lived in the town of Huntsville, which is located in Muskoka. She was a well-known community fixture. She would be seen on the side of the road walking in and out of town carrying plastic grocery bags. She looked disheveled. She often wore secondhand clothing, had a kerchief on her hair, and um, people would stop and pick her pick her up. And she would say, can you give me a ride? And they would take her to a location and, and ask her questions along the way. She didn't like talking about herself, so so people didn't really understand much about her life, although they they seemed to think that she was educated and intelligent. But all she liked to talk about were her many cats, which she, she lived with. And then one day she wasn't around anymore, and police began investigating, and they attended the property where she had been living, and they didn't find Joan's body as they believed at that point they would and they didn't find any evidence that has led to a charge but they did find her 30 something cats shot dead with uh, a 22 uh, caliber hunting rifle uh, according to to police documents so um, to many people that signaled that that Joan um, had been 
had been murdered because because she was she was known as the cat lady and everyone said that she would never leave her her cats wow yeah um hearing it told like that is uh it's such a scary story and um i definitely encourage everybody to check it out uh since you've reported on this series in print on tv and through audio do you think that the case of the cat lady is more effective as an audio journalism project or do you think that one medium does a better job explaining it than another or are all of them uh, important and equally effective i think they're all important although this podcast represents the most comprehensive telling of the story to date i did work on um, a documentary about the case and i did write a magazine article about it in 2017 after that after those uh, projects came out I received new tips and information about the case, oh, some wow. of which were were substantial, and uh, I felt warranted uh, another investigation. So th- this podcast is very comprehensive. It follows the police investigation very closely. A lot of podcasts are are done in pursuit of uh, basic facts about a case, and mm-hmm. I was lucky that you know I had um, done so much work on the story already at that point that I felt I could tell a very comprehensive version of events. So that's something that that I wanted to do from the outset. Yeah. Can I step uh, in and ask something about the podcast versus versus documentary or versus printed journalism? We've seen a lot of examples like Dropout Podcast, for example. And before Dropout Podcast happened, uh, there were articles in printed media and then it was a documentary uh, on ABC and uh, then the Dropout Podcast happened that was much more comprehensive and the podcast uh, included all the tapes, you know, and everything in audio that was possible to include. What do you prefer? What do you like uh, in the podcasting? So when you create a podcast, should it be additional information there helping to deep dive into details into existing story or should it be exclusive content? Yeah, there, there are two very different approaches I think it's always exciting to have an exclusive story. One of the reasons that I wanted to continue telling a story that I I started to tell in 2017 is that people that I know from the Muskoka community, where, by the way, I, I uh, was born and where I continue to live, wanted answers. They wanted to know what had happened to Joan Lawrence and and three other people who also went missing connected to this case. And they've been, I see them in town and, and they ask me, do you have any more information about what happened? And, you know, they tell me they want, they want justice for Joan, who they feel was murdered. And I, I wanted to be able to give answers to, to them. And I wanted to help bring some healing to, to my community. So in this case, I felt that uh, a continuation of an investigation that I had done already was, was uh, justified and warranted, uh, not only by the new information that I have, but also by the fact that so many people um, have seen the documentary and have read the magazine story that I wrote for the Walrus and want, uh, want, want to know what happened. Right. So you feel it was important for the community. Yeah. Yeah. And, and important for me as well. You know, I, I was drawn to this case because, because of the mystery and because I wanted mm-hmm. to know what happened. And I feel like I'm closer now to knowing that than I ever have been before. Yeah. When you, um, at the time that Joan went missing in November 1998, not to directly ask your age, but were you, were you young? Was it, uh, <laughs> was it something that um, scared you at the time? 
Well, I was a young boy, um, and you know, I was too young to to remember Joan, to remember seeing her. Although the parents of a lot of my friends have since told me that they they gave her rides and that they oh, wow. they knew her. And uh, I used to play basketball uh, in the town of Huntsville, so I'm sure that you know my parents would have taken me up there for a tournament one time, and maybe we passed her on the side of the road, and I didn't even know it. Yeah, wow. I think all of the people who have reported for the CBC's Uncover series have had a connection of some sort to the story that they're reporting on, and I think um, that that brings me to a good uh, a point to talk about the CBC. Um, do you think that the CBC intentionally wants to find people who are connected to these stories so that there's a personal mission within them? You know, I, I can only speak to, to my experience with the CBC. I think that what attracted to them, them to this story was the fact that I'm from the community, that I've done so much research on it, and that I could bring an empathetic touch, touch to the story. I, I know that those are values that they have. And, uh, one thing I've noticed listening to seasons one, two, and three is that they, they're very human presentations of very difficult and morally challenging subject matter. Everything from escaping Nexium in season one to uh, the village uh, murders in season three. And this isn't just another story for me. I'm, I'm, right. not, uh, I'm not someone from a city that is flying to a remote uh, country town to report on a local mystery. Um, this is my community. These are people that I know. And, uh, you know, I, I bring that kind of local sensibility to the story. Yeah. So working with the CBC. Oh, go ahead, Valentina. Yeah, I was going to tell because we were talking about CBC and uh, I, I'm really curious about uh, their production. And uh, I noticed that at the upcoming podcast movement event, there is even a special session called Why Are Canadians So Good at Investigative True Crime? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a really good question. Is I it actually... true? <laughs> <laughs> Do you find that to be true, Xander? <laughs> I, I, you know, I think there are great journalists everywhere. I, I know that the the journalism that has gone into this Uncover series is, is journalism that I admire. It's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's empathetic, it's engaging, it's intelligent, it's articulate. I think uh, those are values that the CBC has and values that, you know, I, I strive to to achieve in in the work that I do. Yeah, I love the CBC. Here in the US, I listen to NPR all the time. I went up to Vancouver last September, and I was so happy to turn on the radio and hear the CBC in the flesh. It was like, it was very exciting. So I, I'm, I always love the Uncover series. And um, it's really interesting and cool to be talking to you. <laughs> so um, I just wanted to ask you a few more questions about about your audio reporting. So you said, you know, at first, when you became a journalist, you were doing print stories, did you have any familiarity with audio reporting, with handling equipment and all things like that? Or did you have to completely learn for this um, project? Well, it, it's interesting because I, I didn't have prior experience so much with audio recording from a journalism standpoint, but I did have experience with it from a music standpoint. Right. All of the gear that you use to make a podcast is gear that you use to, to write a song and record a song. So, I, I was familiar with the equipment from that point of view and uh, was able to, to do interviews and to uh, uh, set up and tear down equipment pretty quickly. Nice. How do you know, and this just might be my own question, when you're interviewing, um, 
when you're interviewing subjects and trying to get information and trying to poke and prod and maybe answer some questions, how do you know what kind of stories are going to shape a narrative? How do you know that you're going down the right path? And within that, then how much editing do you have to do? How much tape do you have at the end of a recording session? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have a lot of tape. You have to, in order to, you know, to tell an effective story from multiple points of view. I think that, you know, one thing that was unique about, about this season was that uh, I had collected hundreds of pages of police documents and those documents state, you know, the names of people that police interviewed 20 years ago and the names of the suspects that police had and, you know, very important and valuable information to a journalist. So I used that as a guide to, uh, to begin my, my research and to, uh, you know, make a phone list of people to interview. And it was very valuable that way. Otherwise, I think I would have been stumbling in the dark much more than, mm -hmm. than I was. Wow. From your previous interviews, I've heard that police were not so collaborative as they could be. <laughs> no. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that may be an under understatement. They, you know, they've been very tight-lipped, uh, as Detective Rob Matthews even says uh, about this investigation. You, you know, there was very limited press at the time of the disappearances over the years there have been a few interviews with lead investigators but you know on um, programs that on current affairs programs and things like that 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 didn't really um, get archived mm -hmm. and so there's no when I started researching this case there was you know very little information there was very little um, that you could google I remember googling in 2014 when I first heard about the story the the details that I had heard and all that came up was a, a an old blog post and the missing persons posters so I've certainly learned a lot since then and you know I, I won't I won't give too much away for those of you who haven't heard the show but in the last episode there's a very interesting turn of events with the the Ontario provincial police And tomorrow, there's going to be another interesting turn of events with the Ontario Provincial Police. And I want to hand it over to Valentina in a second to ask you about your music. But I have one more question that I've been dying to ask you, which is, did you listen to any investigative podcast to prepare for this show? And do you love any podcasts now? And do you want to, do you want to shout them out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, an acquaintance of mine, David Ridgen, uh, uh, has a very uh, beloved and, and famous podcast, Someone Knows Something. Oh, yeah. Um, and, That's Canada, uh, too. That is Canada. Yeah. David is a, a great guy and uh, a wonderful journalist and storyteller. Happy to give him a shout out. Um, <laughs> and uh, an American show that I, that I listen to regularly is uh, the Generation Y podcast. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's two friends discussing cases cold cases and they do it in a very factual and focused way that that i admire uh, it's not it doesn't go down rabbit holes it doesn't uh, uh lead you places that aren't satisfying in the end it's it's very uh very reasonable and very empathetic and uh it's a great show that i highly recommend as well nice i love to uh hear where reporters and true crime investigators get their inspiration so thank you so much yeah great so moving on Uh, we would like to talk in more details about the soundtrack and the music in general. As far as I can see, I guess you were really excited to work on the soundtrack, and this is how you described it. 
you were saying is everything you would hear while closing your eyes, it's like a movie. So you were working together with your colleague or your colleagues. Who did what? Could you tell us a little bit more in details? Sure. To do the the soundtrack for podcasts is a, a dream come true. I just, you know, always loved music growing up, always listened to the music in movies. And uh, it was an opportunity that that I jumped at. And uh, I actually pitched the idea to CBC Podcasts, and they were good enough to uh, uh, to say yes to it. So that led to my uh, very good friend, Rory Jordan-Stevens, and I, and, uh, and Rory's partner, Sarah Spring, who's a very talented pianist, uh, to work together. They did 99% of, of everything. I basically just said to to Rory and to Sarah, you know, this is the vision that I have. And, uh, you know, I want it to be creepy and dark and I want it to be mysterious. And they, uh, you know, said, give me a few weeks and we'll get back to you. And, and what they gave me was the soundtrack that you hear in the podcast. It's a fantastic soundtrack that's used very well in the, in the series. All the instruments that you hear are acoustic and organic. That's Rory's kind of trademark as a musician. He brings a, a, a really uh, original uh, sensibility to it and streak of artistic brilliance. So, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased with the way it turned out. Did you start working on the soundtrack after you finished the script or you worked on that in parallel? Uh, in parallel. Yeah, it was, you know, the, the timing of these shows is, is, can be pretty quick and, you know, you do everything all at once. And uh, I had that conversation with Rory about the music early on, uh, basically when I, when I started work on taping interviews. And uh, so everything was coming together at the same time and uh, it just fits together so well, in my opinion. You are composing music for many years. Have you tried to make it your main profession? <laughs> uh no i haven't i've never tried it, it would you uh, like to <laughs> if someone out there would like to to hire uh, rory and i to do a soundtrack full-time i'm sure we would it's uh you know as a storyteller and as a journalist i uh, like to to paint pictures with words and as a musician it's very similar you're you know you're taking an instrument and you're creating melodies and stories and uh, images and it's uh, it's a lot of fun it's uh, a great creative outlet and the marriage of music and storytelling in this podcast uh, was uh, like i said it's uh, it's a dream come true and the podcast is uh, very rich with music and with sound unfortunately we cannot listen to more fragments of the podcast now on the show, but I encourage everyone, please go ahead and listen to Uncover. And it also, besides the music, it's also got some very unique music. It has homework music, and in general, it's rich with sounds. What I like is uh, something like lumberjack coughing and sounds of nature, things like that. So this helps to imagine the picture. Yeah, yeah. I just just uh -huh. to, to add to that, one of the things that I wanted to do with this podcast sonically was to introduce silence and nature. And Muskoka is known as a, a natural environment, and it's renowned for its natural beauty. And I've had the the privilege of growing up in this community, and I wanted to to share the sound of Muskoka with people. So there's a lot of eeriness to the soundtrack. There's a lot of silence, and hopefully, it communicates some of the feeling in the atmosphere of Muskoka, which is a, a, a beautiful area and abundant in, in wildlife and nature. 
Uh, let's switch a little bit and talk about music uh, and about your music that you're composing on your own. You're composing under the name of Large and you've got a few people in your band. Please tell us more about your colleagues from the band. Sure. My main songwriter colleague is Rory Jordan-Stevens. He's uh, uh, one of my best friends and we've grown up together and played in a lot of bands together. Uh, we started composing music together a number of years ago. It's taken on, uh, you know, it's become more serious over the years. We've done uh, a number of albums together. We actually just released our, our, our second album, uh, which you can find on, on Spotify under the name Larch. And um, Rory's partner, Sarah Spring, is a beautiful and, and uh, renowned pianist who uh, composes some music to go along with Larch. And uh, she did the theme song in the podcast, which we call the Cat Lady theme and it's a, it's a beautiful and, and haunting piece of work. I've got one beautiful piece here. It is called Nightlight. Let's listen to it. So it's not from the podcast, uh, it's from the album Night Light, but I think uh, it's in similar style. Yeah, yeah, it's very similar. That's that's Rory singing, just so people have some context, that's Rory singing uh, lyrics that I've written, and that's Rory's partner, Sarah, playing piano. I'm curious about this track, and probably everyone is asking the same question, but I'm still curious. So the Night Light <laughs> is... Uh, obvious referral to Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number no. 14, so-called Moonlight Sonata. Can you shed some light on the story of this song? Oh, <laughs> uh, I don't know that I can. I, I don't know that I can. Uh, I don't know if I'm that uh, fluent in, in music history, but the, the album that we did, Nightlight, is it's an ode to the moon and to, to nocturnal life, uh, which I think Moonlight Sonata is as well. Uh, it's... Uh, you know, I, I struggle with insomnia, and uh, the lyrics that I that I wrote for this album were uh, were born from that. It's uh, it's an ode to kind of the pre dawn hours and to being awake at a time that a lot of other people are asleep. And uh, Rory uh, wrote, you know, ninety nine percent of the music of that with his with his partner Sarah Spring, and uh, and I wrote the lyrics. Moving on, let's talk uh, more about the education. I believe you learned a lot from your family. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I was thinking that you learned composing and you learned everything about music first from your father, who's a musician. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah, I would say that's fair. Yeah, I, um, my mother taught me 
uh, storytelling and my mother and my father taught me uh, music and uh, my father is a musician now and and he was a musician in Toronto in the 1970s he played with a lot of well-known Canadian songwriters uh, and uh, I, I grew up in in a house where he played music constantly so yeah that was a big source of my my introduction to music I'm curious about your education because uh, to those who don't know this Xander was homeschooled until the age of 13 and uh, I find it's uh, an interesting episode of your biography and in 2012 I believe you wrote a book uh, that is called The Curiosity of School Education and the Dark Side of Enlightenment and it made the Canadian nonfiction bestsellers top 10 within a week of its August 2012 release and what's the announcement is saying it tells the story of institutionalized education from the early mid-19th century all the way up to the present it covers topics such as standardized testing the role of corporations in higher education and the growing student debt crisis let's listen to one short episode uh, i asked my younger colleague to read it out loud for us My brother Joshua and I grew up in central Ontario, in the rural outskirts of a small town in Muskoka. We had no TV, microwave, or computer, let alone classes, license, or anything like a curriculum. A typical day consisted of my brother and me dressing up in homemade costumes and running through the woods behind our house. In the afternoon, our mother might bring out the workbooks and even go so far as to put them on the kitchen table. But we rarely did we settle down long enough to do the work or concern ourselves with anything other than which of our favorite superheroes we wanted to be that day. So this is a, just a small episode and uh, I'm going to ask you about being homeschooled. How much did it influence your interest in this topic? I, I think it was the reason that that I wanted to do a book about school, it being homeschooled and then entering the public school system in grade eight was a really profound experience for me. I, I started to um, understand education from the point of view of an outsider. And I, I think a lot of people who are immersed in the school system from the beginning often don't have that perspective. It's just something that, you know, they've always been in and, and, and something that they've always known. But to me, it was very interesting that there were things like desks and clocks and tests and teachers. And I wondered where all of those things came from. So uh, I started researching the history of school in 2009. And three years later, it turned into into the curiosity of school, uh, which was the first book that, that I wrote. And it explores all of the topics that, you know, that, um, that I was interested in as a kid and all of the subjects that I wanted to know more about. As, as far as I can hear from your interviews and as far as uh, I was able to learn from the book, my impression was that you think there are no universal educational methods. At least this is how you describe that, that there are, there are no universal educational methods and there are no methods that are suitable for everyone and that every person and every kid has to be put in the educational system that fits him best. Uh, from what I managed to read in the book, it seems like you're criticizing the modern school and the state school as an institution that kills curiosity. Am I wrong? <laughs> uh, no, I think that 
I think that's pretty accurate. That perspective has become more and more common. I think a lot of people understand that that school is is where you go when you need a job, and it's a it's a career path for for many, and that starts at an earlier and earlier age. And you know, I was always interested in the way that an education could be used to to give you more um, of a perspective of life and uh, teach you things that you know you might use in a job or that you might use for for work, but that represent a, a broader worldview and a broader sense of um, what used to be called enlightenment or, you know, a, a more realized uh, awareness of things. So you hear people say more and more frequently that schools kill curiosity. At the time that I was writing the book, that wasn't as common. And But yeah, I, I think that's the, the central kind of gist of what all the history that I explore leads to. It leads to uh, a sense that schools could be doing a better job of instilling people with uh, creativity and awareness and, and empathy. Let's listen to another fragment. Uh, it's uh, exactly an example of Prussian educational system that killed curiosity. After Prussia's compulsory school system was decided to be the key to its astonishing comeback, word got out. The school system in Prussia is said to be the best in the world, noted the American press. France will undoubtedly hold forth this as one of the reforms which this terrible war has taught her as necessary. And the Prussian system is already spoken of by reformers in Italy as among the improvements which must be adopted there. In Canada, it was declared the national system of Prussian schools has been the admiration, the envy, the model of other lands our own has to a great extent been formed from it. By the end of the century, the Prussian model would be the basis for education in most countries of the world. Okay, so that was uh, a small example of how you criticize some of the educational systems. But can you talk a little bit about uh, alternative educational systems, or at least which alternative educational systems you think are not killing curiosity? Well, I think every school system or, or approach has advantages and disadvantages. There's private education, there's alternative education methods like uh, Waldorf and Montessori, um, there's homeschooling, there's unschooling. Um, there are many different approaches to the activity of educating someone. And uh, I, I wanted to look at all of them and the histories of all of them and see if any had kind of the approach that I was looking for, which was to to instead of instilling a particular worldview in a student, inspiring them to see things more holistically and more creatively. And I found that at the time that I was writing the book, I found that, you know, a lot of these systems purported to do that, uh, but still were very much the product of their founders. And in the example of Montessori and Waldorf and even private education, the founders of those movements had very strange and curious notions of education, which you can still find traces of in, uh, in those methods today. If someone wants to homeschool their kids, but they are hesitant to make a decision because they see a lot of disadvantages, for example, can be challenging to socialize and uh, kids can be bored if you 
don't give them enough assignments. So there are so many challenges that can happen during the homeschooling. What would you say how people should make a decision? Uh, one thing that I think that is useful and, and one thing that uh, I, I found myself telling people who would ask me which system is the best, that, you know, you're not, as a parent, you're not looking for a school system that is best suited to your child. You're looking for a teacher. You're looking for someone within a school school system that has the values that you have as a parent. And uh, in the book and in uh, a subsequent magazine story that I did for The Walrus, I talked about my English teacher, Sean O'Toole, uh, of the Bracebridge and Muskoka Lake Secondary School, who still teaches today. And he was very influential to me and to hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, other students over the years. He's a great example of a teacher who, you know, is willing to go outside the lines of the um, the standard and sometimes rigid uh, school teaching methods to really inspire and instill in his students a sense of originality and creativity. And uh, I think there are many teachers like him. And that was something that I wanted to, to look at in the book and in subsequent uh, education-related work. I wanted to define the teachers who were more radical and more heterodox and willing to kind of go outside the lines of convention to, to bring their students a better education. Mm-hmm. I think you wrote that at least from the the part that I was able to read, you were saying that you learned a lot from your mom. And if she was good in uh, history, you were good in history, you and your brother. And uh, if, but you're still trying to, you still don't remember what cubism is. <laughs> How to find, uh, you're saying radical, teachers can be radical, but do you have your own plan? How to find a good teacher? Uh, well, I'm not yet a parent, so I think that will be a, you know, when I really start shopping for, for the right teacher. Having said that, you know, Sean O'Toole, the teacher that I just referenced, is has become a, a good friend of mine, and he's someone that, you know, I still look to for for uh, creativity and for kind of an approach or a, a way of doing things that is inspiring. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not a lot alone in, in the community of Muskoka in in looking to Sean as kind of an inspiration for that. He's very well known and very well regarded in that, in that community. I profiled another teacher in Alberta for a story in, in the Walrus named Joe Bauer, who uh, is uh, a social media star in education. And uh, he is another teacher who is, is uh, very inspiring to, to a lot of people for his, his willingness to be brave in the education system and to, to take risks. Great. So in one of the interviews, you mentioned that you would like to move away from investigative journalists and you would like to write more about family and personal life. Shall we anticipate the book about parenting or something in this area? <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, I think my family is a subject that I'll return to again and again. I, I think your upbringing and your relationship with your parents and your siblings is one of the most uh, profound experiences that you have uh, in this world. And uh, it's a constant source of inspiration. And, you know, both my parents gave me so much and have given me so much over the years that, and, and my brother as well, that in a way, writing about them and, and continuing to explore my relationships with them in storytelling is, a, I, I see it as a, a tribute to them and to the upbringing that I had. Are you working on any long form piece at the moment? Yes. 
the Globe and Mail is publishing a, a business memoir uh, in the fall that I've uh, spent the last uh, few years researching and writing. It looks at the history of a steel company in Hamilton, Ontario called DeFasco. And that was founded by my great-grandfather and his brother, and my grandfather presided over that company. So the story looks at the rise of DeFasco and my family's personal history. So uh, in a way, it's kind of a blend of research and, uh, and memoir. Yeah, sounds exciting. Looking forward to it. You were Let me just um, yeah, jump in right now. Sure. Sure. I just want to read some of the comments because we're live on livecast right now. So people can uh, type in questions, call in with questions. But Miri said, um, she, oh, my God, I love Uncovered. Just subscribed last week. And that she was just talking about your podcast, Xander, on her livecast yesterday. So that's really awesome. So she just happened to tune in here and had no idea that you'd be here. But you're here and <laughs> she got to hear your whole story. So that's uh, we love that about livecast. So thank you. Great. Thanks, everyone who joined, and thank you guys for sending your likes and uh, comments. Really appreciate it. That's a wrap for the show. You were listening to the Podbytes. I'm Valentina Kaladina, and here also was Ariel Nissenblatt. That's me. We were joined by Xander Sherman, who is a best-selling author and award-winning journalist, a host of Season 4 of Uncover, the true crime podcast of CBC. Xander, thank you so much. Thank you both so much. And thank you to everyone who's uh, listened and, and commented. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Xander. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening and asking questions. Please make sure you subscribe to the show. You can click on the show picture. There is a follow button. Make sure you click it so you will receive push notification next time uh, when we go live. And also you can see the upcoming live shows on the Livecast page of CastBox. Use the app, call in ask questions, and interact with your favorite hosts. We'll see you next week. Bye.